Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by our longtime friend and member, Scotty Miser. This is Genesis 19, 1 through 29. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. And he said, No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them to you. And you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under my protection, under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a farmer, and now he wants to play the judge. We will treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. And he said, Hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. But the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had bought them, brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Do not look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. The Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a small town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to them, very well. I will grant you this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town is called Zor. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur 
on Sodom and Gomorrah, from the Lord out to the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all who were living in the cities and also the vegetation of the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, when the smoke, like the smoke from the furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of the stories that shape those who seek after you. And when those stories confuse, upset, confound us, we thank you for your spirit. Thank you for all that you do. And may whatever we do today draw us closer to one another and closer to you. In your name, amen. story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Are we all familiar with it? Is that the first time anyone heard that one? No. No, probably not. So as such, you knew this wasn't going to be a fun one. When I saw this on the teaching schedule, I knew it wasn't going to be a fun one. Partly because there's a lot of things about this story I don't know. Was Sodom and or Gomorrah a place that we can find in the historical record? I don't know. Neither does the historical record. There's some archaeological evidence here and there, but it's hard to know what to look for when the story is about a city being completely destroyed. How many people were in Sodom? The biblical definition of a city is putting pretty much anywhere big enough to have a gate. So, was this New York? Was this Philadelphia? Was this Bristol? Or was this just a little hamlet that had gotten some very mixed up ways about how to treat one another? I don't know. The story doesn't tell us, and the historical record doesn't tell us. What I do know is that this story takes place in the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis, whenever you're reading it, you should be asking one thing. What does this tell me about Israel's identity as a nation? That's what Genesis exists for first and foremost. As much as we would like to get from it exactly, you know, carbon dated, how long it took the world to be made, as much as we have all our questions we bring to the text, the question it's most set up to answer is, what is Israel's identity as a nation? And it's with that question that we're going to approach this story. Because I think it has a lot to teach Israel, and I think it has a lot to teach us today. 
Kyle, if you'll go to the next slide. This was my, if you take any, nothing else statement, that we must pray for a world where it's harder to sin. If you like that one, you can have it. I think I have a better one. When you see the weak outside, open your doors. Can you do that with me, guys? Can you hold your hands like this? When you see the weak, the vulnerable, outside, open your doors. Amen? This is the call to Israel, and this is the call to all who would be known as God's people. Kyle, if you go to that next slide. So as dark as this story is, we're all familiar with this premise. The story of divine visitors coming to visit the common folk to test their morals. It's common in fairy tales, like Beauty and the Beast, when a man is cursed for not showing generosity. It's common in lots of stories. It's common in ancient Near Eastern myth. This wasn't the first story that we find in Genesis. This isn't the first story of a divine visitor testing the worth of man. And it's not even the first story in this section of the book of Genesis, because if we flip over just the page before, who else had a divine visitor? Do we remember? Thank you, Cal. It was Abraham. Three divine visitors came to visit Abraham. In classic Genesis fashion, it doesn't really explain to us the nature of these three men in the order that we would like. However, Abraham passes the test with flying colors. He says, come in. He opens his tent. He slaughters the fatted calf. He makes the best feast you could ever prepare for three strangers wandering down the road. And this was part of the code of hospitality in the ancient world. As Gary said the week before, in a world before hotels, in a world where civilization was not a given, uh, hospitality was considered a divine and holy practice. You were to treat all strangers coming in your town as though they were divine, as though they were sent to you by the gods or were the gods themselves in disguise. So what Abraham is doing is the exact right thing. Kyle, if you go to that next slide. But when the three men visit with Abraham, they eat Abraham's food, they tell Abraham a bunch of stuff about his destiny as a nation, and then two of the three walk away. And in classic Genesis fashion, it's not until this point in the story that we realize, okay, one of these men is presented as the Lord, and two of these men are angels. The two men walk away to Sodom, to where Lot is living, Abraham's nephew. And the one man left, the Lord, tells Abraham this. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Already this is pushing against our modern conceptions of God. Like, why would God need to check something out? Isn't God 
all-knowing, doesn't, it, what, wait, why? The story doesn't say. I have the same book you guys do. The story doesn't say. <laughs> but God is presented here in a manner that maybe we're not used to, but God is presented here as a righteous judge. A judge who will not pass judgment without first examining the facts. God says, I've heard the outcry. I will see for myself. But the word outcry is a unique one, too. You go to that next slide, Kyle. Outcry of what? Does the story say here? It doesn't. And the Hebrew is vague enough that the possessive there could mean the outcry against Sodom. It could mean the outcry of Sodom, of people in this city longing for justice. We don't know exactly what the outcry is of, but we do know the first time the word outcry was used in Genesis. This is first used and the ancient reader would notice this hyperlink back to the text. It was first used for Cain and Abel. If you go to that next slide. <clears throat> After Cain kills his brother Abel, the Lord says to him, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. This is the outcry. This is what God means when God says outcry. Injustice has been done. Innocent blood has been shed. And is the Lord simply meant to do nothing? Is the Lord indifferent to this slaughter? Sodom and Gomorrah is a disturbing story. But the good news of this story is no, God is not indifferent. God is not indifferent to injustice or to suffering. God is not indifferent to the outcry of his people, amen? Where blood is shed, God hears. Where there is death in the garden, God weeps. And where justice is meant to be served, God will see for himself. So Abraham passes the test. God visits. Abraham invites him into his tent. But will Lot pass the test? And more importantly, will the city pass the test? I think a lot of times we look at this story as a story of individual transgression, individual sin. But this is the judgment of a community. This is the judgment of a city. So as much as Lot's being tested by the divine visitors, so is Sodom. So I want you to keep track of this as we sort of re-examine this story. Where does Lot get it right? Where does Lot get it wrong? And what does the city do when presented with this test? Kyle, would you go to that next slide? <clears throat> So these two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Not an uncommon pastime in the ancient world. You would sit at the gate of the city, you would see who was coming in. This is where the news was about. This is the place to hang. 
But Lot sees these two visitors, and whether he recognizes them as angels or not, he gets up, he meets them, and he bows down with his face to the ground, and he says, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. So far, Lot's doing okay. He hasn't run to them as Abraham has, but he has approached them. He hasn't given him, he hasn't given them a full feast, but he's given them what he has. So far, Lot has passed this test of divine hospitality of protecting the stranger. But what does the city do? Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city, both young and old, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can know them. Now that's translated often into what we understand it to truly be. But the Hebrew verb here is, is know, is to see them. And so the reader's going to be tricked into a false sense of security for a minute, of like, oh, well, Lot's done pretty well. Maybe the city's going to do well. But very quickly, the context makes it known that, no, this is not what the mob is after. So Lot goes outside to meet them, and he shuts the door behind him, and he says, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Do this other wicked thing. <laughs> Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. <laughs> you were so close, Lot. You really... Whew, swing and a miss there, buddy. <laughs> Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot, and they moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. And then... They struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The vulnerable strangers are not so vulnerable after all. And the men who sought to know, who sought to see, can see no longer. So we see where Lot gets it right and where Lot gets it wrong, very clearly. But what is the failure of the city? What did they fail to do? What is this story meant to teach against in Israel as its identity as a nation? First, I want to talk about what it's not. Because of what this story has been used as time and time again, I have to say, the failure of the city is not homosexuality. It's not homosexuality as we talk about it today. If we read a story about a violent attempt 
at gang rape, and our first reaction is that it seems too gay, we should re-examine our priorities. This is not a story condemning certain kinds of partnership. If you want those verses, you're not gonna find it here. This is something else. And it's something that's not confined to Bible times. This is what we see in 1980s El Salvador, when during the Civil War, 76% of political prisoners reported that they were either raped or sexually tortured during their time in prison. This is what happened in Sarajevo in the 1990s in the prison camps where 80% of men reported the same. This is what we see today when juveniles are incarcerated with adults they are five times more likely to report themselves as victims of sexual assault than if they are in juvenile delinquency with their peers. This is an imbalance of power. This is a display of dominance. I have a quote here describing the phenomenon. From Elton Sherwin, he says, there are many known instances, unfortunately, of gangs of straight men sexually abusing other men. All through history, this happens. It happens to foreigners, to slaves, to prisoners, to women, to sexual minorities by men asserting their dominance over others. This is a violent mob, and they see the vulnerable stranger and they want the vulnerable strangers to know their place. And Lot, did you catch it? Lot is already at a disadvantage. Why? Why won't they listen to Lot? Because Lot's a foreigner. And maybe that's why Lot knew it wouldn't be safe for these two men. Maybe Lot didn't recognize them as angels. Maybe Lot saw them as outsiders and said, no, I know it's unsafe here. You need to come with me. The city fails. The failure of the city of Sodom is the failure to honor the stranger and the failure to protect the vulnerable. Amen? And this is something that does not does not merely inform Sodom's identity. Because, again, we're in Genesis, and this is supposed to inform Israel's identity. So what is Israel supposed to get from this story? Are they supposed to laugh and point at Sodom? And be like, ugh, thank gosh we're not those terrible people doing those terrible backwards things. Sodom, like, like Babylon, actually becomes a metaphor. In the Old Testament, it's really second place only to Babylon in terms of wicked city metaphors that Israel is compared to. If you go to that next slide, Kyle, the prophet Ezekiel 
brings up Sodom again. And he says, this was the sin of your sister, Sodom. Who's he talking to? Your sister? He's talking to Jerusalem. He's saying, this was the sin of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. And earlier in the passage, Ezekiel says, you, Jerusalem, not only followed their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways you soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Do not count yourselves safe of becoming Sodom. Time and time again, Israel is told, when you see the vulnerable, you need to open your doors because you were once foreigners too. You were freed slaves. And you relied on the kindness of strangers. When we see the weak, we open our doors. Amen? Can you do it with me? When we see the weak, we open our doors. So how are we doing? How's, how's this country doing at treating the strangers? In a word, poorly. I could throw stats at you. I could throw a lot of stats at you. I know, for instance, that 2021 was a new peak for homicides against transgender and non-binary folks. It was a new peak. We as a nation, we as a people, are not doing well at treating well those who don't understand, those we don't understand. So how would we do if two visitors came from outside, two visitors with nothing in their pockets, two visitors who maybe don't look like they're from around here or around anywhere that we've heard of, Two visitors whose, whose gender seems a, a mystery, honestly, and whose identity is all the more so. How would we do? And I can throw the stats at us, and I, and I as someone who is researching this sermon, I know what my responses usually are when I am given dismal data. My first response is often anger. And the righteous anger, it feels good. But it burns hot, it burns quick, and when it's done, I am left in despair. I'm left asking, how can I help? Lot couldn't save Sodom. I can't save my nation, my community. 
but I can open my door. Church, we can open our doors and provide safety for the vulnerable. I want to close with a story. My ninth grade uh, literature class, we were reading through a book called Refugee. And it was telling the stories of three different refugees. One, a, a German boy, um, a, a Jewish German boy in, in the 1930s, uh, a Cuban girl in the 1990s, and a Syrian boy in 2015. And we were reading these stories of vulnerability together. And I have to be honest, I wasn't as well researched as I would have liked. I'm also trying to control 10 kids and get them all to not fall asleep and get them all to not hide their phones behind the book um, with varying success. And so my first response was anger. And my second response was despair. How can I get these kids to care? Most of these kids are coming from upper, middle-class income backgrounds. They wouldn't have to know about this stuff. How can I get them to care? I did what I could to open my doors. I reached out to a friend who works for Hyas, which, to bring this on back to the Israel identity, stands for the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. They're now simply known as Hyas because their mission has expanded. But my friend came in, and I had my students prepare questions for him. And they were engaged. They were active. Yeah, their eyes glazed over when he started presenting a whole bunch of uh, legal, um, you know, all the cards you have to have for documentation and whatnot, but that was on me. I didn't tell him that they had questions prepared, so he thought he had to fill up the whole time. But when proximity, when the gap of proximity was crossed, when it was no longer a matter of abstract ideas, when it was no longer me just holding up a book and yelling at students to care, to care for God's sake, when there was a person in the room, I didn't have to tell them. And there was a per when there was a person in the room, that generalized despair could be funneled into an actionable result. My friend Gin looked at me and he said, you know what we really need more than anything is beds. People coming in, they need a place to stay and the first piece of furniture they need is beds. Lucky for me, there were two other teachers in the room who immediately started nodding, looked at me, pointed at me, said, yeah, we can do that. We can do a fundraiser. We can do something like that. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm hopeful. <laughs> it, it was the last week of school. Come on, we weren't going to start a fundraiser. But I'm hopeful. Here's an actionable way we can open our doors. Yes. The outcry of blood can be deafening. 
And the temptation to despair, it seems, is ever-present. But if we can find people who can narrow our focus, who can bring us into proximity with specific people, when then when we see the vulnerable, we can open our doors. So in closing, talk to Gwen. Seriously. <laughs> we have the opportunity to house those in need of housing, to house the refugees. Talk to Gwen. But I'm going to leave you on this reflection slide. Let's look at this week. When will you have the opportunity to open your doors? Maybe it's part of your job. Maybe all you do nine to five is open doors and hold the crowds back on the other side. And if that's the case, let me tell you, God sees. God is not indifferent. God sees, God cares, and God honors your work. But wherever you are this week, I'd ask you to keep your eyes open. Who needs help? Who would society forgive you for ignoring? When we see the vulnerable, we open our doors. Amen? Amen. Thank you. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.